preaching of God's Word is found in Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 to 11. This is the third of three parts working through this portion. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. You'll remember that our first sermon uh, was not following the sequence, but looking at the foundation of love, verses 5 to 8, as it focused on the mind of Christ and what He's done in service to us, for us, in love. And then previously we looked at verses 1 to 5, where the exhortation is given in light of Christ's love. And now we give our attention to verses 9 through 11, where we see this one who came in lowliness exalted above all else. And so to give us some context, we'll read from verse 8 and onward through verse 11. Philippians 2, reading from verse 8 to 11 to focus on 9 to 11. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." One thing we see in this chapter and the portion that we've considered in these three sermons is that though the world mistakes and misjudges lowliness and our own flesh remaining resists it, it is a most to be desired grace. And we see that both in the beauty of Christ and His lowly service to us, we see it as well in, oh, the beauty of such displays were they to be found among us. As verse 3 says, nothing being done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. What a beautiful thing to have a family full of those who are lowly in mind, a congregation full of those who are lowly in mind, and going about in loving service in this lowly fashion. And so we see that the world misjudges lowliness and that though we're prone to do so as well, we've been given the mind of God in the Scriptures to show us such beauty. But one thing we tend to ignore is that the lowliness experienced in this world is misjudged because we fail to see that the lowliness is actually true greatness. And Ultimately, we won't see the true greatness of lowliness until the last day. But the Christian has been given foresight because of what's taken place with Christ. Notice the text. Immediately from the death of the cross, Paul launches into what has happened to Christ since. Wherefore, Because of this lowliness, because of this service, because of this love so displayed in these uh, uh, loving services to His people, because of that, God also hath highly exalted Him. How highly, Paul? Well, Paul says, given Him a name which is above 
every name. Now, of course, we realize that Jesus, as He is God, cannot be exalted. He is, of course, the Son of God, equal to the Father and the Spirit, one true God, ever blessed, ever exalted, ever glorious. But here it's speaking of Jesus as the mediator, incarnate, as He humbled Himself and taking to Himself uh, a true human body and reasonable soul. He was incarnate and is incarnate still. All of His lowly service, He took the lowest posture among all men. And He as the incarnate mediator has now been raised up. And so here is a wonder for us. It's not just that the Son of God is so named above every name. But it is that the name Jesus, which was given to an infant who was nursed by His mother, who was cared for in His youth, who knew what it was to hunger, who knew what it was to be tired and wearied, who knew what it was to be despised of men. That this incarnate Son of God whose name is Jesus, now bears a name above all else. What's going on in Paul's argument is he's saying, don't think for one moment that I'm calling you to something that is less than great. Because you need to remember Christ. Christ who is the greatest as the Son of God. And yet, the Son of God who has become incarnate and as the incarnate Son of God, served in the most extreme way, even unto death and that of the cross, being made a curse for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This one was not about a lowly work, but rather His lowly work was an excellent work, a glorious work, which is seen by the exalted state He's received. Christ, the highest, made Himself the lowest. And now He is exalted above all. What we see here, in other words, is a perspective that only God can give us. Because you see, the world will have its rags-to-riches stories. All of you will know some. There are those who are born in poverty, and through hard work and diligence, they climbed, as it were, the ranks of society And now they're millionaires. We all know stories of that sort. And we don't deny the diligence and the labor that was demanded for such things. And yet this is not a rags-to-riches story. What we have before us is a breaking in of the true perspective of what's glorious. In this life, lowliness is looked upon as something not to be desired. In this life, it's looked upon as something of a narrative that I'd rather not have. But what the exaltation of Christ tells us is that lowliness in the gracious way that Christ went about it and in the gracious way we are called to go about it is in the sight of God most excellent. It's not that it will become most excellent. It's that the exaltation of Christ gives us God's verdict on lowliness. It is, in God's sight, of great value. The world despises it. We ignore it. We rather avoid such things as would bring us low. 
to make ourselves servants of others, giving ourselves in loving self-denial that others may advance in the things of God and of Christ. We find it difficult and irksome to have Paul tell us, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And we meet that exhortation with this sense of, but what about me? When do I become great? And what the exaltation of Christ tells us is, you'll become great when you become low. That's greatness in God's kingdom. So Christ is regularly teaching this. The first shall be last, last first. There are different ways in context that He uses that. But one such way is those who humble themselves shall be exalted. We read, of course, in Proverbs 3. James quotes that in his epistle, James 4, that unto the grace God gives, or to the lowly God giveth more grace. And he exalts those that are humble, a commonplace throughout the Scriptures. Why is that? It's because God delights in such gracious lowliness. And the exaltation of Christ is the wondrous testimony of it. Think of it this way. Your perspective is only true insofar as it agrees with God. That perspective will only be fully realized after the last day. Now, we don't mean by that that we can't have our perspective increasingly strengthened and given greater clarity and conformity to God's Word as He reveals Himself in His Word to us. But what we do mean is that ultimately, not until the last day, will we see really what things are and how they are. We struggle with it still. Temptations come dressed up in beautiful, attractive packages because they appeal to something still broken within us. They appeal to the lust of the flesh and so on. Righteousness seems difficult for us because it demands bearing the cross. So you hear and I hear Christ's call, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And we say, what an agonizing, painful life. And there's truth to that. And yet what we don't see is that life is the glorious life. That life is the beautiful life. That life is the life that in the sight of God is most blessed. And so you read through the Beatitudes and you say, this is out of touch. It's out of touch to say such things as Christ says. But really what it is, is it's out of touch with a broken world. It's not out of touch with reality. In other words, the world's view is out of touch with reality. And one thing, not the only thing, but one thing that Christ's humiliation together with His exaltation does is it sets forth the right perspective. And so before us, we see Christ's love bringing Him low in His service to His people. But notice the wherefore tells us this loving service has by God caused Him to be promoted in glory above all. So we wish to look at the glory of love is seen through the exaltation of Christ in three ways. Firstly, the relationship between glory and love. Secondly, the perspective that glory gives love. And thirdly, the lasting glory of love. All through the lens 
of Christ who humbled himself and by the Father is exalted. Firstly then, the relationship between glory and love. We need not be long on this point because you can see the relationship as you take verses 5 to 8 and you look at the first word of verse 9. Verses 5 to 8 testifies to us of Christ's loving service. And how does that loving service appear? It appears in all of the colors and hues of lowliness. And so Christ, who is Himself God, yet made Himself of no reputation, took upon Him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Almost in one breath, Paul has given us the summary of Christ's humiliation. Not every detail, of course, but the general truth of it. He who is God became man. As man, He was a servant. As a servant, He suffered unto death, even the death of the cross. And so it's not just that He's going forth as some ascetic denying Himself. He's going forth in loving service to save. That's what love is. It is a service of grace. It's a service by which one gives himself or gives herself for the good of another. And so the world's view of love, of all these happy feelings, and we have the you know, abomination of Valentine's Day and all the stupidity that's bound up with it culturally, all of that nonsense of what the world thinks of as love is entirely misplaced. Because love isn't about candy and flowers and gifts and other such things. They may be tokens. Love is about one saying, I deny myself to give myself for you. And so you think of this. You know, at at a wedding, all the ridiculous things that are being used as vows today, historically, the basics of saying, I give myself to you. I take you unto myself. The husband testifying, I will love and serve and honor and provide in all these different ways for his wife. And the wife saying, I'm going to give myself to you to submit, to serve, to honor, to love, to obey all these things. And the world quibbles with that and says, well, let's turn the vows into something else and make it funny and clever and cute. We say, "You're, you're abominating what the vow is supposed to be. It's a solemn commitment to this truth of love. It's not about being my co pilot. It's not about being my right-hand man and all these kinds of things. It's about one saying, I will deny myself for you. I'm giving myself to you. That's what's being expressed at marriage, at wedding. That's because fundamentally marriage is a relationship of a man loving a woman and a woman woman loving a man in an exclusive way that is bound up in marriage. And so they give themselves to one another. And they deny themselves. And it doesn't take long for them to realize the difficulty, yea, the impossibility of fulfilling it. Because they live a few weeks into their marriage and they start to realize this is going to take massive work in me. Now the world says he needs a lot of work as the wife, or the world says as the man, she needs a lot of work. But the Christian says, I need a lot of work. I must deny myself in order to serve. So things about toothbrushes and you know, times of meals and so on. 
become matters of how can I deny myself in order to love and serve. Now, why do we stress that? Because there are tangible ways we can see what Christ is doing. Fundamentally, Christ is saying no to himself. He's not denying his glory. He's not denying his majesty. He's not denying his honor. But he's saying, I am setting up their good before mine. And I'm going to give myself for their good. This is Christ's love. It's His service. He loved the church, as Paul says elsewhere, and gave Himself for her. That's what love does. It gives, sparing no expense to oneself, to the actual well-being of others. Now we have false images of this. People spend money, they go into debt, they buy things for their girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, and so on, and they're giving. And there's a little false image of it. But really, love is not about the amount one spends on a gift. It's about how one denies themselves in order to serve the other for their good. And preeminently, that's what Christ has done. He's denied Himself. And this is where the world starts to say, that seems off. That's not the model that I want. I don't want self-denial. I want infatuation. I want to have all that I want. And I want her to have all that I want. At the basic of it, I want what I want, and I want her to want what I want. I want what I want, and I want him to want what I want. You see, Christ goes about and says what they need, what they desperately need, is something they can neither give themselves nor procure from others. I must secure it for them, though it costs me the shame of the cross, the agony of damnation, yet I will deny myself to it. Them. Notice the connection then. That's Christ's lowly, loving service connected with the wherefore. The wherefore states his exaltation. Wherefore, because of this lowly service, wherefore, because of this self denial, wherefore, because all of what Christ resisted for his own gain, instead giving himself for the good of his bride, because of this, notice what's said. It doesn't launch into she's now saved, the church is now justified, and so on. That's all true. But it focuses upon Christ Himself. And it says, God also, that's speaking of the Father, hath highly exalted Him. Now, were we taking the cross, the mention of the cross, a bit out of context, we would think that it would say, wherefore, the bride has been saved. Well, that's assumed. The argument is unto personal lowliness. What Paul is doing is getting us to see God's perspective on it. And so he takes the best and the highest and the purest example. He's certainly more than an example. The cross is far more than a moral tale. But what Paul is doing is saying, look at what Christ has done. And do you want to see what God thinks of His service? That one who humbled himself is now bearing a name which is above every name that ever shall be named. What's Paul doing? He's setting forth the suffering and the exaltation of Christ as an argument against our hesitation. You say, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if it's actually worth it or satisfying or good or right or proper for me to come low. You know what people will say? You know, am I supposed to be a doormat? Am I supposed to come under people? Am I just supposed to let people go and so on? And 
course, we have to parse those things and work through them because different people mean different things. Of course, we're not to make ourselves, as it were, just the instrument of tortuous behavior by others. But oftentimes, what we're actually fighting against is not the obvious mistreatment of others, but we're actually subtly resisting the necessary self-denial that God calls us for. And we're actually not struggling with understanding what that means. Self-denial is actually pretty easy to understand. Someone wants one thing, I want another. Now, if the someone wants something that's sinful, obviously God would not have us to deny our righteous desire to say, let's let sin carry on. But the idea is, I spare no expense to say no to myself in order that I can say yes to the service of others. We say, that's a tall order. We say, you don't know it. You don't know how tall it is. You want the tallest picture of it. Christ is set forth. Christ is presented to us. He who is God humbled Himself to be made as a creature and as a man served unto the cross, the death of the cross. And in light of this glorious display, He now enjoys the highest glory. That's the relationship. Lowliness in God's grace as it is given to us in the Scriptures will always be met with exaltation in the end. Every single time. That doesn't mean in this calendar year as you pursue lowliness, you can mark it down come December 31st, you're going to see market improvement in all of your situation and circumstances. That's not what we mean. Because that's not what Christ experienced. Paul is presenting to us a clear relationship whereby we see God will always link glory with lowliness. Not just superficial lowliness, but loving, gracious, God-honoring lowliness. Because that's the kind of lowliness Christ Cultivated. And that's also what Paul is exhorting us to do, as we saw in our previous treatment of verses 1 to 5. So, the relationship between glory and love, that loving, lowly service, will always, by God, be issuing forth unto glory. Secondly, then, the perspective glory gives unto such love. We know perhaps what the world's view is of self-denial. The world, even as the Scriptures use the expression, let us eat, drink, and be merry. That's the world's view. I read yesterday an article about the expenses going into the Super Bowl and how it is all the ticket cost that's there. And then after uh, uh, game parties, a ticket to entrance is $7,000. So you think of the money that's spent there and the money then that's spent to go into this after-game uh, party and the thousands of dollars that are, are taken up in that. Why would people do that, even millionaires? Because they value it and they think it's worthwhile. Imagine if someone said, we're going to have a party where you deny yourself. You're going to, instead of indulging yourself, you're going to make it your purpose to go to every single person and see how you can serve them. That's the party. What would the ticket cost be for that? How would people outvie one another to find how they can get the rare 
uh, ticket to get into such a gathering. And of course, we understand that there would be no market for it. Because that's not satisfying to the flesh. To serve people? I don't want to pay to serve people. I want to pay to be served. Think of that for a moment. We pay in order to be served. And we get upset when we aren't served. The whole of our posture is often focused on, are they going to serve me as I want to be served? And so when the Bible comes and radically contrary to that message says, no, no, in my kingdom, you're going to outdo one another in service. That's what Paul's saying. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That is what God is calling us to. And our current view of that is, that's difficult. I'm not sure I want that. We understand because we judge in a carnal and earthly way. But if we back up and view the things from God's perspective, we don't have to struggle to perceive it because Paul's planting it right before our face. What should be our perspective on such loving, gracious, lowly service? Well, our current view is off because we judge temporally. We judge by sensual measurements. But the coming view is clear, which has already begun, and that by the exaltation of Christ. God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. Think of all the mockeries, the scoffing, the ridicule that Christ endured, the discomfort, the difficulties, and the trials that He faced. And people look at His life and they say, why would I want that? And He actually warns people, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay His head. Who's going to sign up for that? At times we almost get the picture that Christ is chasing people away. If you would be My disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Me. Why is He so earnest in these things? Because He's sifting a carnal view of glory with a real view of glory. The carnal view hears that and says, well, you know what, I don't know if I want that. I I, I would take it if you could reduce some of those requirements. You know, if instead of denying myself, you could just say something like, that I don't get all that I want all the time, well, then I can be happy with that. Because who's going to get everything they want all the time? I can live with that. But here's the thing. So can everyone else. Everyone else can, if they're going to live in this world, live with this fact that you're not going to get everything you want. But Christ doesn't say that. He says, deny yourself. And then we have a second issue. Taking up the cross. You know, I know what that means. That means you want me to mortify my own desires, that I should crucify my desires, that I should agonizingly suffer and put to death those desires. That's a little too extreme. See, our current view looks at it all through the lens of the here and now, and we say, that's not what I want. I want the picket fence. I want the nice yard. I want the comfort. If I can have that and follow Christ, sign me up. 
But if you're saying I have to deny myself and my finances are actually now owned by Christ and to be funneled in ways that would honor Christ, that my spare time is actually claimed by Christ so that it's to be used in ways that promote Him, that my tongue is no longer my own, but the only things that should ever speak are those things which are necessary and minister grace to the hearer. If you're saying that, that's too much demand for my life. I don't know if I want that. And you see, what's happening actually is the current view is eclipsing the coming view. And that's why Paul sets before us the exalted Christ. Look where this Christ is now. And Paul directs us upward. And he says, this Jesus who was spat upon, who was beaten beyond recognition, who was scathingly mocked and ridiculed, who was looked upon by the leaders of the Jews as one who was despicable in their sight and mocked Him with all of those words recorded in the Scriptures. And we see that. Paul says, that's true. But if you want God's perspective, look at Him now. And Christ is exalted. He is exalted to the highest that one can be exalted. He is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think of this for a moment. Every eye that beheld Christ, which was met with a heart which despised Christ, will be compelled to magnify Christ as the best. Every believer in this world who with Christ has served, not as perfectly as Christ, but nonetheless by Christ, His mind being in them, and has denied themselves and have foregone certain pleasures and certain comforts and certain prerogatives and certain rights in order that they may be a life of service and love to others and have gained nothing in this world, shall with Christ one day be exalted. What's that telling us? The coming view is to govern the present action. Not the current view. The current worldly view has discolored lenses, distorted mirrors that are playing with our understanding. But Christ's exaltation is reminding us what the true and real thing is. Glory gives us perspective on self-denying love. Why so? Well, what Christ is exalted to is a testimony of the Father's esteem of Christ. And when believers are exalted, yes, they're exalted by His grace. Yes, they're forgiven by the uh, work of Christ and so on. But notice the context is not of justification here. It's of sanctification. Let this mind, verse 5, be in you. Be transformed. Be renewed. There is glory to come unto those that are sanctified. And so as Christ is risen, as Christ is exalted, and He who is exalted is because of, wherefore, verse 9, of those things which He suffered, what Paul is getting before us is this. You who deny yourselves in gracious love of service to others will partake in His glory as well. 
This is confirmed again and again throughout the Scriptures. We are heirs, yea, co-heirs with Christ. Notice Paul doesn't go far into this epistle before he starts speaking about this very thing. When he testifies of the hope of the resurrection. When he says, notice in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says that I may know Him, that is Christ, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. You see what's happening? Paul is opening up some of the things of chapter 2. He says, not as though I had already attained, that is to the resurrection, either were already perfect, but I follow after that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Thus we are to be like-minded with Him. And finally He says, in verse 21 of that chapter, that Jesus Christ shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body according to the working whereby He is even able to subdue all things unto Himself. What's Paul's point? Well, it's an extended argument. He's making this point. Look at Christ. Look at His suffering. Look how no one went nearly as low as He went. And yet now look at Christ, glorified, exalted. No one will ever go as high as Christ has gone. But the mind which was in Christ is to be in you. And it's not in vain that it will be. Because He will change your vile body like unto His glorious body. You deny yourself. Notice what Paul's saying in chapter 3 where he says that he is, verse 13, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He's pressing toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's laboring, diligently denying himself, refusing this and refusing that in order to honor Christ and serve those around him that he might enjoy the prize of Christ Jesus and the glorious, exalted state of heaven. Brethren, that perspective is what makes us look upon lowly service of love not as something to be despised, but as something that is truly glorious. We won't fully understand the glory of such a life until it is that we are glorified together with Christ Jesus. That's the perspective Paul is providing us. Every little self-denial in Christ's name for the good of His kingdom is not something to be despised. It's something to be embraced. There is where true glory is. There is where true dignity is. There is where true value is. If you want evidence of it, remember Christ. He's exalted. This brings us thirdly to the lasting glory of this love. Give it this way. For how long shall Christ's name be above every name? Children, do you know? For how long will Christ's name be above every name? The simple answer is forever. There will never be a time when Christ's name is demoted. There will never be a time where thousands of years have passed and finally someone has equaled Christ or become superior to Christ. He is and always shall be the object of the highest praise. Why? 
Well, you would be right to say, because he's the Son of God. There's truth to that. But that's not the argument here. You see, in the Scriptures, there are often both ends. There's both his essential dignity, which makes him as God worthy of the highest praise forever. But there's also the end. And as the mediator who humbled himself and served in the lowliest fashion, even unto the death of the cross, he has been given a name which is above every name. That's Paul's argument. That's his point. This glory to him as the incarnate Son of God, as the meteor that shall continue for all ages, is fundamentally related to his lowly self-denying love in service to us. That's why. You see pictures of it in Revelation. Thou art worthy. Who is that one who's worthy? What has he done? For thou hast loved us and washed us from our own sins in your own blood. What are they remembering in heaven? His lowly self-denying love to us. He who is the Son of God humbled Himself to serve us and for ages endlessly to come, the church will always give glory to Him for this wondrous loving service summarized in a handful of verses. All characterized by self-denying love. His most loving and lowly service will ever be the matter of His everlasting praise. This doesn't mean we won't worship the triune God, that He is God, but it does certainly mean we will never leave off remembering the lowly service He took upon Himself to save us. The lasting glory of this love. Brethren, that's the point. For how long will you have to deny yourself? Think of that for just a moment. For how long will you have to deny yourself? You might live 90 years old. You might live 100 years old. You can do the math from 100 years to where you are now. Let's say you have to live a life of self-denial from now until 100. What is that compared to endless ages of glory? And you start to see something. You start to see all of the quibbles, all of the frustrations that get our inward temperature up. And we get hot, and we get bothered, and we get struggling with others and say, why don't they give me honor? Why don't they give me glory? Why don't they do for me? You know, I've been doing for them for quite a long time. You know, I've got the time. It's, you know, from last March until today. That's a, almost a year now that I've been going about praying, serving, doing all of these things, and they are doing anything for me. We think, well, I've been at it long enough. I'm going to give up. I'm done. They can get it together. And we capitulate over quantifiable service, ignoring that which cannot be quantified of glory to come. What we have done is we've reverted to the current view of a broken world instead of relishing in the glory to come. And think of how earnest and faithful and frequent Christ is doing this. The one who gives a cup of cold water in a disciple's name will not lose a disciple's reward. The one who does this in my name will not lose his reward. And Christ is regularly pointing out lowly forms of service and saying, I want you to pay attention. That lowly service in my name will never be forgotten. It will always be honored in my kingdom. It will always be treated with the great weight of glory. Why? Because 
that glory which shall be will be the clear testimony to us of how highly God esteems this gracious, loving, self-denying service to others. It is first in God's kingdom. Why? Well, in some sense we can say it most beautifully expresses what God is to us. It most clearly expresses the likeness of God. God, who is unimaginably great, we cannot comprehend His greatness. Look at the world around you for a moment and what do you see? Service after service after service after service after service of God to you. You sleep a minute and a night? That's a mercy of God giving you that minute. You sleep a few hours interspersed with some waking moments, God's still serving you. You have a roof over your head, that's God's service. You took water this morning, that's God's service. You have any comfort of your body working in any degree well, that's God's service. He's given you friends and family and others to support you. All of that is God serving you. We have whole psalms dedicated to this theme that the God of heaven and earth who is worthy of nothing but praise, nothing but honor, nothing but glory from us is regularly ordering the universe for our enjoyment and our good. And then we see it most perfectly in Christ not only in the outward created orders by His providence directing all things, but in the redeeming work of the cross came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give His life a ransom for many. God, and we say this reverently because biblically it is said, serves us. He delights in serving the lowly. And when it is that we most deny ourselves and give honor in loving service to others, it's then we most resemble God. And His likeness is more fully realized in us. You want to know when you're most unlike God? It's when you're sitting back with that critical eye toward others and saying, why aren't they doing what I want? The point of Christ's exaltation has much to commend itself to us. But preeminently in context, it is commending to us that never will those who by faith in Christ and love to God deny themselves and serve others, never will they be forgotten in heaven. But God shall magnify His grace in them forever. It's no wonder that we find Paul testifying that it is God who works in us to will and to do of all His good pleasure. His grace in us is promoting His kingdom in us, which in the last day will be exploding in praise to Him. And all around will be trophies of His grace. And every one of them will have different degrees of self-denying love that He recounts and brings forth before the eyes of all men. It can be a difficult thing for us to think one day I'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's difficult to realize that our own sins will be recounted and yet we start to get comfort when we realize every one of them will be recounted as those which are pardoned to the glory of Christ 
endearing us all the more. But we sometimes forget that at the last day, when Christ has His people before them, He will also be recounting their loving service. Thank you for visiting me in prison. When did we visit you in prison? Tell you to the degree you did it to the least of these, you did it also to me. You also clothed me. When did we clothe you? Well, when you saw the least of these and you clothed... Think of that language, the least of these. What's he getting at? When you serve the lowest. And on the last day, glory will erupt because now the perspective will be right. Those are truly the glorious ones. Not the ones who in a few hours will be beating their chests and celebrating with confetti and going to parties and all of those things. Those aren't glorious ones. Those are ridiculous laughingstocks of vanity. You want glory? You go into the third world country where Christians are and you see people with dirt floors who self-denyingly to themselves are serving others in love. God will have His celebration, which is not a passing party, but will be an eternity of praise to Him and blessing to His own. Brethren, learn to see this in this way. Every obstacle to your lowliness needs to be seen as an obstacle to your glory. Everything that would set itself up as a reason in your mind to say, I'm not going to do that because that isn't what I want. You actually need to step back and say, that has just become an obstacle to my glory in heaven. We have hesitations to acknowledge that the Bible teaches rewards. There are rewards of grace, though. We realize that in Scripture. I mean, Paul says, I press on toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Surely Paul wasn't out of his mind to say, you know, I've taught this doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Now I'm going to slipshod my doctrine and go into a justification by works. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this, the same grace that draws us by grace to believe upon Christ and receive righteousness from Christ imputed to us freely by which we are declared righteous, that same grace also works within us that we would be transformed. And so God is working within us to will and to do of all of His good pleasure so that now we can strive to deny ourselves and to press on toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so it is that by His grace and to His glory, we learn to deny ourselves. And that the glory we receive in heaven will be to the further glory of the God who has worked in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. What a reproof there is when we avoid loving service. When we do that, we avoid Christ's way. We avoid Christ's call. We avoid the church's good. We avoid the church's advance. We avoid our own joy. We avoid and diminish our own glory. Every obstacle that we present or is presented to our minds as arguments as to why we should not deny ourselves. This brother's not worthy. That sister's not worthy. All of those things are so many hindrances to our fuller glory in heaven. So what are we to do? We begin with Christ. We live upon Christ. And we seek Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in 
Christ Jesus, the same Christ who suffered and died, rose again and is exalted for all everlasting time, is the Christ to whom we go and say, continue your work in me. Here are the hindrances. Here are the obstacles. Here's my selfishness. Here's how large I'm seeing it to be. Let Christ live in me and beautify me with the same meekness and lowliness that is found in Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me?